All right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 4. Hebrews chapter number 4. The title of our message this morning is The Power to Persevere. The Power to Persevere. Certainly I'm thankful for the worship songs as I am every week, but uh, specifically... Show us Christ, sure and steady anchor. Wow, I don't know that there there could be more applicable and appropriate songs for the text that we have before us here this morning. I will say this, before we dive into verses 12 and 13, uh, which is what we'll, by God's grace, attempt to cover this morning, Pastor Dave is going to be preaching a our Easter service, as we finish out Hebrews chapter number 4, looking at Jesus, the great high priest, what he accomplished there, I think it'll be a very, very appropriate uh, Easter message, and excited to be able to see the overlaps even in uh, our, our calendar, where we can just continue right on through our preaching text and, and focus on Christ, uh, remembering an empty tomb, remembering that he is risen. Defeating sin, death, and hell. And ultimately, has not Hebrews been all about Jesus? All about the gospel? All about the personal work of Jesus Christ? And so we'll continue our way on through. But before we dive into verses 12 and 13, I did just want to provide a a little bit more context around this topic of persevering. This no doubt is, is a biblical concept, even doctrine, as it's uh, organized and formed in in doctrine in our day of theology. And um, there's a lot of struggles with the perseverance of the saints. There's a lot of questions around assurance of salvation. And Hebrews, um, in some ways, uh, complicates those, those topics a bit with some of these warning passages that we have uh, here in, in the book of Hebrews. And it's a bit tricky sometimes to connect the dots between uh, a sovereign God who initiates, uh, sustains, and completes salvation and, and a text uh, such as uh, Hebrews 4 where we are, we are called to, to strive to enter into that rest. And there, there seems to be somewhat of a conflict there. And so I want to I just linger in that attention a bit and talk about uh, the perseverance of the saints and what that looks like for us to reconcile these, uh, these admonitions, these exhortations to, to fear and to strive to, to enter into that, that rest this morning. I hope um, you'll be encouraged. I hope maybe by God's grace there'll be a little bit more clarity around that topic, and ultimately, I pray that we will see Christ high and lifted up. What a a beautiful prayer uh, that we have just sung uh, before the message, that we would see Christ this morning. That said, would you join me in prayer just once again before we dive into the message this morning? God, we, we come to you once again 
with, with open hands, open hearts, acknowledging that we bring nothing to the table. We need you to speak to us this morning. We need to see Christ in your word. So Father, I pray that you would be faithful to your promise that when your word goes out, it it never returns void, but it will always prosper and accomplish the thing that you sent it to do. So Father, I pray for the one here this morning whose faith is waning and struggling. It's been shook to the core and rocked by circumstances of this life and questions that have come up. I pray that that person, that individual would find a sure and steady anchor for their soul this morning in the personal work of Jesus. I pray for the young person, the adult here this morning who maybe is allowed sin to creep into their life and it's gone unchecked. They become complacent, content with willful and known sin in their life. I pray that we would wake up to the reality that you are a jealous God, you are a holy God, and you desire to be in relationship with your covenant people. But Father, I pray for that sin that it would be repented of, it would be confessed. We thank you for the hope that we have this morning that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray that you would help our unbelief. Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. I pray that we would believe that, know that, and receive that hope this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You struggle sometimes with setting unrealistic expectations in life, work, maybe marriage or or family, or maybe it's your yard or a hobby, sport that you want to accomplish, or some other academic or musical endeavor. Have you ever struggled with just setting the bar maybe a little too high, and then the reality sets in? Uh, we're, we're Q, Q1 is done, right? We're now into quarter two, and uh, maybe your New Year's resolutions, <laughs> did you set the bar a little too high? Have, have they come and gone a little bit? Do you struggle with expectations uh, and, and being able to fulfill them? I oftentimes struggle with that in a lot of different areas of life. I'm a very goal-oriented and ambitious guy. Um, if I do something, I, I, I want to go all in. And, and sometimes I need to just dip my toe in the water instead of cannonballing in the deep end, right? Uh, that's, that's a struggle that I have. Um, the Christian life is not exempt from those realities. Sometimes we, we have these grandiose ideas of what our Christian life is going to be like, what it's going to look like. Uh, have you ever seen those uh, Pinterest fail memes, right? What it's supposed to look like and then, and then reality uh, oftentimes, that's, that's where I fall into with, with my Christian life. I, I have this idea and this picture in my mind of, of what it's going to be and uh, w- you know, what we're going to accomplish by God's grace and the impact that we're going to make, and, and then it, it might look something different. 
And that's okay. And that's even good. Why? Because under sovereignty of God, it's exactly what it's supposed to be. But unrealistic expectations are often swirling in my mind in my Christian life. I have this idea of, you remember Usain Bolt, the great sprinter, an Olympian? You guys remember? I can't remember when it was, maybe 2012, 2016. I'm trying to think of the golden years of Usain Bolt. Uh, it seemed like he was there forever in the Olympics. Um, but you can remember him and the impact that he made in the, the sprinting world. He just effort, effortlessly seemed to win uh, the 100 meters. I mean, with, it seemed like he didn't even try. I mean, he's, he's like in a full trot, and the, the guys beside him are just locked in, all-out sprint, and he's looking back like, hey, are you guys going to start running anytime? Just let me know, right? He just, just breezed across the finish line, seemingly effort, with, with very little effort. That's oftentimes my vision of the Christian life. I forget that it's not a sprint, it's, it's a marathon. But I want to be Usain Bolt. I want to effortlessly go through the Christian life. Um, hey, a gold medal every once in a while wouldn't be too bad. Uh, maybe a little flair. Do you remember Usain Bolt's? I won't do it because these are going on, on YouTube now. But he, he did the lightning bolt pose that made famous. You remember this? He, he, he literally revolutionized the sprinting world. And, and that's what I think I'm going to look like in the Christian life. But oftentimes, it looks more like Derek Redman. Do you remember this story? Also a great sprinter and Olympian. Derek uh, Redmond uh, represented Great Britain back in the 1992 Olympics. He was a favorite that year to take the 400 meter. And in that race, they lined up, the, the gun went off, and, and Derek Redmond was, was out of the gates and, and had a good first turn. But as he's coming out of the first turn, Derek Redmond pulled his hamstring. And if you, I was going to maybe pull up the video, but. I'm not real good with pulling videos up on, on, on sermon days, so I'll let you re- either remember this or go back and look at it later. But Derek Redman was, was off to the races, made that first turn, hamstring blue, and he pulls up. If you can imagine representing your country in the Olympics, training literally for your whole life of this moment, in the semifinal race, a favorite, all the pressure, and expectations of your country riding on your shoulders, and Derek Redman pulls up, immediately falls to the ground. You can see him try to gather himself and his composure. He gets back up on his feet and begins to hobble and almost skip forward. And as a world-class athlete would be, he was bound and determined to do what? Cross that finish line. Injury or not, he was going to finish the race. Derek Redman struggled and limped along for a little while. The pace slowed as the physical and emotional pain became too great to bear. It's at this point, famously, if you remember, that his father Jim came out of the stands. Placed his arm around his son right there on the track as they slowed to a steady walk. One foot in front of the other. The race complete. 
all of his competitors now been done for a number of seconds. Derek's face was buried in his father's shoulder, weeping, hurting, in pain, and they crossed the finish line together, but only by the support and the strong arm of his father. That is realistic expectations of the Christian life. I want to be Usain Bolt. I want to have the flair. I want to accomplish great things. I want to have the legacy to be the, the greatest Olympian probably of all times or right up there with many of them. But in reality, I'm, I'm Derek Redmond pulling a hamstring out of the first turn and hobbling my way across the finish line, but not alone. A heavenly father is there every second of every moment, placing his arm around me, walking across the finish line, hobbled in pain, hurt, disappointed, but finished. Nonetheless, the race that the Lord has put before me. Imperfect as it may be, again, this could be a more accurate depiction of what it looks like to persevere in the faith. Ultimately, we can't persevere in the faith on our own just as I can't achieve salvation on my own. So the title of this morning's message, the power to persevere in the faith, it's solely a work of Christ through the gospel on my account. So what are we to do with these warning passages of Hebrews? This wasn't the first, and it's not going to be the last where we're going to be confronted with this warning against apostasy in the church. What are we to do with these passages here in this this letter of Hebrews? What the author, I believe, is attempting to do is to establish a clear distinction between a real active and genuine faith versus that of a spurious or false faith. Although seeming to be real, there is a pseudo faith. There is a fake and false faith. And that pseudo and fake faith is no faith at all. This is the contrast that the author of Hebrews is attempting to set up. If we don't have Faith, we know God's word tells us it's impossible to please God. So exposing the error for what it is, is top of mind for the author of Hebrews. He intends to leave no question around what is required to enter God's rest and be in relationship with the holy God. As we have seen and will continue to see throughout this book, it requires a great high priest. The man, Christ Jesus. This man. This is the one that we celebrate uh, during this this Holy Week. Right right here on, on Palm Sunday. Beginning this Passion Week of Christ. This is the one that we consider, that we think about. As we remember back to chapter 3, verse number 6. It was, consider Christ and hold fast to the confession. So this is the call. 
This is our recalibration of our mind of understanding this warning and apostasy and, and the falling away and, 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 and the, the hardened, evil, unbelieving heart that we see in this passage of warning. We are to look to Jesus. That should be our response. We look to the Messiah. Jesus Christ. And even on this Palm Sunday, there's a lot of correlations to our passage in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. As Jesus made His triumphal entry, He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in perfect fulfillment of prophecy. The, the crowds there at Jerusalem, they had swelled to up over 2 million as the Jews were gathered there to observe the Passover. But even then, Jesus warned against a pseudo-faith. Do you remember John chapter number 12, verse number 13? So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We know Hosanna in the Hebrew, it simply means what? Save us. Hundreds of thousands, even millions of Jews crying out to Jesus Christ in fulfillment of prophecy, riding into Jerusalem, crying out, save us! Save us! Even the King of Israel. Now the question is this, were the crowds crying out to Jesus to save them from their sins? Were they answering His call to repent and believe the Gospel? No, they were crying out, Hosanna, save us from the Romans and deliver us. They were longing for an earthly king. This faith was self-serving and self-centered. Just as we see here in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Many followed Jesus during that day for their own purposes. They, they came to Jesus on their own terms and Jesus continually reminded them that if they were to truly follow Him, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Him. So this spurious faith, this is my new word for the day. As I was studying, I came across that and I I loved that word. Do you like to learn new words? That was a new one for me. Spurious. It's a spurious faith. It's a, it's a false faith that appears to be real. And a pseudo-faith, again, is no faith at all. So this is, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is attempting to expose. And so he warns of this counterfeit and damning false faith. It is actually evil and, and unbelieving. And so the letter of Hebrews lays out five clear warning passages. If you remember with me, back to chapter number 2, verses 1-4 through four was our, our first warning passage. And we're just wrapping up the second warning in chapters 3 and 4. We'll see three more beginning in chapters uh, 5 and running through chapter number 6. We'll see another one again in chapter number 10 and then a final warning passage against apostasy and false faith in chapter number 12. 
And so the challenge that we have is that we want to lean into these passages and understand exactly what the author is attempting to do and to accomplish by bringing up these stark and, and, and very clear warnings in his letter. So what are we to do? How are we to approach this, this topic of unbelief? So much of this book, as we're seeing, and it continued to unfold, it's being tied up in this topic of unbelief and false faith. What are we to do with that? What are we to do with that? Is this that we should look into our own lives? And then if it was that much of a problem then, is it not a problem in our day now? Deceiving our own selves. There's a warning even for us to consider. We should look to Jesus. Remember the Savior. Look to the Messiah and persevere. Hold fast your confession. And by God's grace, the author is reminding us that true and genuine faith comes only from the Lord. We're reminded of Jesus' words in John chapter number 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus said, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, Jesus said in John chapter number 6. This is the assurance. This is the sure and steady anchor for our soul. This is the perseverance of the saints. This is Jesus working on our behalf to accomplish a work that we could never do. John chapter number 10, verse number 25. Jesus once again answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. There again, faith. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Speaking of Jesus as the good shepherd, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I, meaning Jesus, know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, did you get that? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Hold fast to the confession. Hold fast to the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. If you'll remember back with me to chapter number 3, I preached down through verse number 6. Pastor Dave took it from there and preached the rest of chapter number 3, but we, we unpacked two specific verses that really highlighted this doctrinal concept of perseverance of the saints. These verses are found in chapter 3, verse number 6, and the second is in chapter 3, verse number 14. 
D.A. Carson notes that these two conditional verses fit into what he describes as an evidence-inference category. What do I mean by that? There is an initial observation of a piece of evidence. And based off of that observation of that evidence, that naturally leads the observer to infer a certain logical conclusion. So let's look at chapter 3, verse number 6. Let's see what the evidence is, and let's see what conclusion we can make based on that observation. Hebrews 3, verse number 6 says this, We are His, meaning God's, right? We are His, meaning God's. We are His house, if indeed we hold fast our boasting. Or you could also translate that as our confidence in our hope. So we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our boasting in our hope. Look down to verse number 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. An evidence-inference relationship. The author of Hebrews then maintains that it is the continuance in faith to the end that will demonstrate that they are members of God's household. If indeed... We hold, in verse number 6 and verse number 14, thus, those that by God's grace do continue in the faith, it is they that will enter into His eternal rest. From Psalm 95. Carson goes on to note that Hebrews defines true believers this way. He defines them as those who hold firmly to the end the confidence that they had at first. True believers are those who hold firmly to the end the confidence they had at first. So this warning of apostasy, this warning of of falling away, this warning of unbelief, this evil and unbelieving, this, this hardened heart. What do we do with this? How do we hold fast our confidence and hope? How do we persevere in fear and strive to enter that rest? We consider Jesus. We consider Jesus, who we have seen is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. We look to Jesus, who is over the household of God, and we rest in who He is. And here in verses number 12 and 13, we see that Jesus accomplishes this persevering work on our behalf, namely through the Word of God. So we see, we observe Jesus yet again at the end of chapter number 4, verses 12 and 13. We see Jesus, the Logos. We see Jesus through the Word. So that's my introduction on the perseverance of the saints. We only have two verses, so we had time this morning to do that. So let's go ahead and dive into verses 12 and 13. The big idea of our message this morning of the power to persevere, the big idea is this, and it's a short one, okay? We won't even leave it up that long because it's so short, all right? Here we go. The, the, The big idea is this, God's word is the means by which we enter his eternal rest. 
God's word is the means by which we enter his eternal rest. We're going to look at just these two verses, 12 and 13. We're going to make two simple points as we uncover, seek to uncover this power to persevere is in and through the word of God. The first point we're going to look at this morning is the word of God defined. The word of God defined. This final section gives us a a path forward, if you will, that is consistent with the whole of Scripture. No conflict, no tension needed. We understand perseverance of the saints. We understand unbelief. We understand apostasy. We understand that there is a sure and steady anchor for our soul. We understand that this work of perseverance, of initiating, sustaining, and completing our salvation is, is holy of the Lord. He uses the Word of God to draw sinners to repentance. He uses the Word of God to sanctify us in our walk with the Lord. Now someday when our faith becomes side and we see Jesus face to face, the living Lagos, we will see the Word of God fulfilled in our glorified bodies as He completes what He has promised to do. The Word of God is the means by which the gift of faith The Word of God is the means by which the gift of faith is stirred up in the mind and heart of an individual. Do you remember Romans chapter number 10, verses 13 through 17? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing to the word of Christ. Beginning to end. Beginning to end. The Word of God is the foundation that we hold firm to. As outlined in our statement of faith, it is our only rule for faith in practice. In our context, here it is the means by which we are able to enter God's arrest and avoid the lifestyle and pattern of willful disobedience that that cause us to perish just as the disobedient generation perished in the wilderness. So let's define and describe this Word of God as we see it here in verse number 12. It's first living and active. Amen? The Word of God is living and and active. I love these descriptive words connected to the Word of God. These are the True qualities of faith. Do you remember James chapter number 2, verses 14 through 19? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled... 
without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The author of Hebrews is contending that just academic knowledge and belief and knowing some things about the good news, knowing some things about the gospel, even believing that Jesus is Lord as the demons believe and know that Jesus is the Son of God, this is an incomplete, a pseudo-faith, a spurious faith that we can rely on academic head knowledge, not have a heart that desires to submit and believe the gospel, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. Even the demons believe and shudder. So true faith is what? Alive and active. Let me ask you this question. As we're been over the last number of weeks, going through chapters 3 and 4, hearing the, the warnings, the danger of a, of, of a hardened heart, seeing the, the, the blinking red lights of, of warning towards an evil and unbelieving heart. Have you looked in the mirror? Have you evaluated the state of your relationship with the Lord? Have you looked at the the quality and the content of your faith? Is it in Christ alone? By grace, through faith? Are you trusting in your good works, your your head knowledge, your background, your, your Bible college degree? Are you trusting in something else other than Jesus Christ alone for salvation? And if the answer to that is anything other than by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, friends, we get on our knees before a holy God. He calls us to repent and believe the gospel and to place our faith and confidence in Him and Him alone. True faith is alive and active. These aren't works attempting to earn more favor in the eyes of God. Rather, this is a living and active faith and the Holy Spirit is producing fruit in your life that remains. Does your faith have a pulse? Do you have a heart for the things of God? Do you have a short sin account in your relationship with the Lord? Are you quick to repent? Are you quick to confess? Are you quick to reconcile with those in your life? Friends, these are fruits. This is the grace of God working in your life. Assuring you that you are in the faith. The Holy Spirit at work in your life. It is alive and active. The answer to those questions is a bit fuzzy. Again, we should lean into these verses and these warnings and pray that God would stir us up and revive our cold hearts. So in contrast to the hardened hearts of chapter number three, the author goes on to define the Word of God in a very descriptive way. You see that in verse number 12. For the Word of God is living and active. It is, it is alive and active and moving. It has a pulse. It is producing fruits by God's grace. Secondly, it is sharper than any two-edged 
sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart sharper than any two-edged sword. The double-edged sword was specifically designed for its piercing capabilities. God's Word is able to pierce even the hardest of hearts. Are you thankful for that? Amen? God's Word is able to pierce the hardest of hearts. And then the extent of that piercing is further explained. It is piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God, secondly, is able to expose a false faith. There's no hiding from or deceiving the Word of God. The Word of God is able to discern the thoughts and even the intentions of the heart. This piercing sword removes, or excuse me, reveals even the motive of our thoughts. God's Word knows. And Jesus, as the Logos, the Word becoming flesh, the one who dwelt among us, John chapter number one. This word, Jesus Christ, knows us, knows our heart, knows our intentions and motives, and knows whether, whether we have a real faith or a spurious faith. One that is good on the outside, but revealed to be fake and false. The word of God is able to expose this false faith. There is no hiding. The Word of God is able. This piercing sword reveals motive. It breaks through the facades and exposes the quality of our faith. It exposes who we are trusting in. Is it anything else other than Jesus Christ? And if it is, that is a false faith. Is it rooted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary? Is it trusting and believing in the resurrection account of an empty tomb? This is the definition, the description, and the function of the Word of God. It is alive and active. God's Word is able to save. And friends, we've been equipped with the Word of God, the inspired and inerrant Word that we hold in our hands. It's the very Word of God. Do you love it? Do you cherish it? Are you reading it? Are the words of God on your lips, on your tongue? Are you quick to calibrate a conversation back to a verse, a scripture? Are you quick to say, hey, you know what? What does God's word say about this circumstance, about this trial, this difficulty, this disagreement? Let's go to the word of God. Is it alive and active in your life? The second aspect of the word of God that we want to look at this morning is the word of God deployed. What does the word of God accomplish when it is deployed in our lives? First, let's look at the scope of the word in verse number 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. No creature is hidden 
in the eyes of the Lord. All of mankind is subject to the piercing effect of the word. There are no exceptions as all other faiths, both religious and secular, are inadequate and unable to save no matter how confident or how sincere their spurious faith may be. We're all visible and seen by the Lord through the Word of God. And so this final phrase of describing the effectual work of the Lord, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. The Word of God strips away every work, crutch, selfish motive, vain good work, and through the ministry of the Word, we arrive at a place of surrender and submission as we are reminded of the sovereignty of God. Do you see the sovereignty of God in that last phrase of Him to whom we must give an account. There's no question about the authority and the reign and the domain of Jesus Christ. We must give an account. It is God that rules with authority over everything, over all people. At all times, it is He that we must give an account to. We will be reminded of the brevity of life later in Hebrews chapter number 9, where yet another sobering reminder is before us in verse number 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes what? The judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Oh, what beautiful eternal rest that will be when Jesus comes to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Do you long for that day? It is the Lord that we must give an account to. He is God. He is Creator. And He is the authority of the world. And as such, I must submit my life to Him. This is the biggest problem that the world has with Christianity. It's an authority figure. It is one that we must give an account to. It is one that we must submit our will and our ways and our plans under His authority. The only question remains then is this. It's the timing of that submission. By God's grace, will I submit my will to Him now and respond rightly to the Gospel and recognize Him as Savior and Lord? And by God's grace, place my faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary? Will I do that now, this side of eternity, or will I do it later? Because we're reminded, back in our series through Philippians, chapter number 2, that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Of Him to whom we must give an account. The question is now or later. Matthew chapter number 7, verses 21 and 23. Sobering, some of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture. 
Jesus reminds these religious leaders, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, they have judgment that is appointed to every human being. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, I wonder this morning, do you know the Lord? Has the word of God revealed to you his person and his work in the scriptures? And as such, have you responded in simple childlike faith? Have you responded like Peter did in the Gospel of John? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Have you repented of your sins, turned from your way and placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone? Friends, I wonder if there might be someone here today who, like the crowds at Jerusalem, are shouting, Hosanna, save us. But the salvation you seek is self-serving and self-centered. The question remains, are you willing to come to Jesus on His terms? Or are you only interested in coming to Jesus as long as it's on your terms and in your way? Friends, if that is the case, you're ultimately unwilling to accept Jesus and to surrender your life to Him. Of Him to whom we must give an account. And that is no faith at all. So friends, I wonder, does your faith feel fake? Does it have a waning pulse? Are you not sure if you will enter His rest? If that's you, friends, the author of Hebrews would have us run to the Word of God. And to feast on the promises and the hope that we have in the man Christ Jesus. Friends, if if the assurance of your faith is waning, run to the Word of God. Pray and ask the Lord to use His Word to draw you to Himself. The power to persevere is found in no other person than that of The Word of God. Yes, the Word of God is a person. It is Jesus Christ. I leave us with 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. Friends, as you, look, as you look at your life this morning, do you need some teaching? Do you need some reproof? Some correction in your life? Do you need to be trained in righteousness? Run to the Word of God.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the power to persevere is not on our shoulders, but it is in your son. I thank you that Jesus has filled that role completely. And there's no question about the efficacy of the faith that is rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ alone. I pray for the one who is struggling in their faith. Maybe it's because of circumstances, um, persecution, struggles. Maybe it's because of, quite frankly, unconfessed sin. Maybe a besetting sin that is um, carried on for months and years and maybe even decades. Um, Father, I pray for the faith that is struggling, that they would find hope and encouragement and confidence to hold fast the confession of our faith. God, I pray that maybe just through a verse, a simple point that was shared through your inspired word, I pray that you would instruct and grow us in our knowledge of you this morning. We thank you and pray all these things in your name. Amen.